This podcast is brought to you by the San Francisco Intergroup of Overeaters Anonymous. Okay, I have uh, some pictures there. Um, and the first thing I always have to do when I come into these rooms is thank the people in these rooms for saving my life. Because that's absolutely the truth of my story. Um, I walked into my first meeting October 6, 1999. Uh, I was 470 pound meth addict and there was no way I was going to be on this planet much longer. Um, and today because of this program and this fellowship, uh, I have a life uh, truly beyond my wildest dreams. Uh, I. Um, when I walked in these rooms, I, I wouldn't even have wanted the life I have. You know, it was so far removed from anything I imagined when I walked in here. Um, it, I, I wouldn't even have wanted the life I have now. It's um, I couldn't even conceived of it. So in the pictures there, um, they show me at a um, family reunion. There was about, I think it actually it may have been um, the weekend after my first meeting. And um, the pants I wore were these pants, and these are the pants I wore in my first meeting. In fact, these were the only pants I ever wore anywhere because these were the only ones I could get to fit me. And these are size 72. Um, I think this is about as big as they make them, and this is about as big as I could find. And I stretched these out all the way. Um, so, you know, I was looking at those pictures before I spoke, and I was remembering some things about that family reunion. And um, I got down there and, um, you know, I went to take a shower before uh, the family reunion. And, you know, I was in there a long time and my mom starts knocking on the door and saying, hey, we got to go. I got to use the bathroom before we go. She said, what's taking you so long? And what was taking so long was basically I had to take the short shower door. It was one of those sliding doors. I had to take and disassemble that whole door to get into the shower because I could not get through the sliding door. And that's pretty much what my life was like. Um, You know, um, anyway, so just to say how I got there, I believe from an early age I was an addict. Uh, when I was growing up, I really didn't have any addiction problems or anything. Um, my, you know, I didn't have any abuse. I've heard some horrible, you know, uh, stories of abuse and uh, people that lived in addict households, and that clearly it wasn't my my path here. Uh, I don't know if I was hardwired for it or or what happened exactly. Uh, I know I, I lost my dad when I was about 14, uh, and kind of well, anytime you lose somebody, it's tragic. But it was just kind of a very strange thing. You just kind of disappeared out of my life and I think that had an impact on me. Later on when I did my fourth step I was I was really shocked at how angry I was for him dying when I was, you know, at that age where you need somebody to show you you know, my anger was that he, he didn't stick around and show me how to be a man uh, basically, that there was nobody there to do that. So the earliest addict behavior I can recall was uh, there was a picture of me playing basketball there, and I was a gym rat in high school. I wasn't the most physically gifted person. Uh, I was center on our basketball team. We were a small school, and I was guarding guys six or eight or ten inches taller than I was. But uh, I always vowed that nobody was ever going to work harder on, a, on the basketball court than I was. So I was always the first one in the gym, last one out of the gym, you know, uh, just kind of a very manic 
existence. And I think from there I, I developed a, the motto that was going to govern the rest of my life and, and sometimes pops up its ugly head today. And, and that motto was anything worth doing is worth doing fanatically and anything not worth doing fanatically is not worth doing. And, um, you know, you can get some things done that way. But uh, you can create a lot of wreckage and havoc that way also. And, and that's what happened to me. Um, I was in a normal way through high school. Of course, I was playing sports. You know, I was running probably five or ten miles a day playing basketball and, and uh, a couple of other sports. And when I went away to college, um, I remember my mom dropped me off. And uh, five minutes after she left, I was high. And, um, you know, uh, that continued pretty much for the rest of my life until I walked into these rooms. So when I say I'm an addict, um, I, was a, I was a meth addict. You know, I did a lot of dr- other drugs before that. But I don't really mean that I was a, I'm an addict in every which way. Uh, and the way the, book, the big book describes it uh, and, you know, Bill's story and there is a solution, more about alcoholism and the stories of the big book, um, that's the kind of, my whole life was, was being an addict. It wasn't uh, just food, it was drugs and just my whole way of life. Um, and that's what I mean when I'm a, a compulsive overeater and an addict. It wasn't just the fact that I was doing drugs. So, um, you know, I, I, I had a couple of different jobs. And, um, you know, I had this, uh, I don't know, I was somewhat successful on my jobs that always on the edge. You know, there was, there was uh, hard work and talent there, but there was also uh, an addict way of living. You know, I was constantly late for work. I was missing work, but when I showed up, I did a good job most of the time. And uh, it was a it was a lot of fanatic, fanatical work, and you know, not a lot of not showing up. Um, I had a job in uh, 1996. I thought I was going to be out the rest of my life, and basically that job uh, that shut down the place where I worked and I was just devastated. And I was already gaining a lot of weight. I'd been a meth addict already for 15, 20 years. And I went from about 310 to about 470 when I walked in these doors over the next year and a half doing meth practically every day. And I had all these, uh, you know, uh, meth head friends that were these skinny little guys, and they would see me do a bunch of meth and then go to Burger King and get, you know, three double cheeseburgers and two large fries and a Diet Coke, and they'd say, wow, you're really sick. And they were really right. (laughs) Because they couldn't understand how anybody could eat after doing all the meth they did, because they never ate, you know. And... um, so my life continued to get worse and worse. Health problems, things like, uh, you know, I couldn't even sleep laying down. I had so much weight on my chest, I had to sleep sitting up because I couldn't breathe. I'd wake up just gasping for air or with these terrible headaches. Um, my legs were swelling up. Some days I couldn't even put on my shoes. Um, you know, uh, my blood pressure was going, you know, through the blood pressure gauges and stuff. It was getting so high. And, and I just, more and more, I was just kind of losing touch with reality. I, I had, you know, really close, long-time friends that would invite me out to places. And, you know, the day of the event, I would call and say, I can't go, you know, uh, so I'm not feeling well or something. And basically it was, I couldn't imagine, you know, walking from the parking lot to wherever we were going. Uh, I couldn't imagine sitting in a seat. In fact, 
I think maybe the uh, week before my first meeting, I went to a Springsteen concert, and uh, you know, music was something I loved all my life. And I went in the concert, and it was like three and a half hours—the most miserable time I've ever spent on my, you know, the earth. I just crammed into the seat. My knees were up around my chin, and I was just pissed at everybody. You know, so something that I really loved, uh, baseball was the same way. I'm a big baseball fan. I went to the Coliseum. I sat down in a seat and broke the seat. You know, so doing the things I loved had even become painful. So um, I started going to a therapist, and my therapist recommended that I go to OA. And every week she asked me if I could, you know, go into a meeting. And every week I told her I couldn't find a meeting. You know, and in Oakland there's about 45 meetings a week here. And here in San Francisco there's about 45 meetings a week. And uh, you know, I just I didn't want to find a meeting. Uh, I had a started with a second therapist and then um, she was a little more insistent. She said, if we're going to work together, you're going to go to OA. And so I said, okay. So October 6, 1999, I went to my first meeting and I consider that the most important thing I've ever done in my life was go to that meeting because that's where my life really started, uh, the life I have today. So I went to that meeting and... Um, I went to the newcomers meeting and there was somebody, I don't think I've seen that person since, I don't think she was very excited to be there. She explained a little bit about the program and I heard the word God and I immediately shut down. Uh, I was a dogmatic atheist, I believe strongly in what Mark said, that religion was the opiate of the masses and since I was a drug addict I was much more interested in the opium than I was the religion. Um, and I, uh, you know, I, I was, you know, basically we had these uh, old couches in that meeting, and if I could have got up and left, I probably would have. But I couldn't get up and leave. I mean, it was just those were old couches that you sink down into, and physically I couldn't get up and leave. I had to have somebody help me get up. So I sat there through the rest of the meeting, and I started hearing something different. I, I started hearing about people that lost a lot of weight and kept a lot of a lot of weight off. And not only that, they, they, they had a joy about them. You know, there was a sense of being alive. And, um, you know, I'd been to Weight Watchers meetings and Nutrisystem meetings and a couple other diet clinic meetings. And, and it always seemed to people, me, that people there were kind of talking through grinding teeth. You know, that there was this act of will that was going on and, and uh, uh, that whatever they were in, because if I was in those things, I was certainly miserable there. Um, you know, I'd, I'd had some success dieting in my earlier days, and basically uh, a diet lasted and it was successful as long as I could till the point where I felt like I, I could feel good about eating again. You know, that's, that's what a diet was. It seemed to me was when I could get to the point where I could feel good about eating again, then I would start and I would go back way up past where I would have been before, and it always went back and forth like that. So I heard something different there, and I think the most important thing that happened to me, and for that reason, uh, working with newcomers has really been a big part of my program, was after that meeting, there were two people that, that uh, came up to me and asked if they could give me a hug. Now, I hadn't um, said anything during the meeting. I'd introduced myself. I hadn't opened my mouth. Uh, probably the look on my face is much like the look in that picture, one of you know general pathetic sadness and uh, poor me. But these two people reached out and, you know, they're hugging me. It was like somebody kind of just reached into my chest and held my heart in their hands. And 
it was so powerful and I, and I really feel those two people saved my life because that's really what kept me you know got me back to my next meeting uh, one of those people um, uh, was a man and he called me several times and you know I started reading stuff in the big book and he started talking to me about what he was you know uh, what he was eating and just kind of bugging me in general talking about you know uh, going to different meetings and uh, you know I came, uh, he brought me over to San Francisco to some meetings and uh, different meetings in the East Bay and you know eventually he bugged me to the point where I asked him to be my sponsor <laughs> and I consider that the second most important thing I've done in my life because when I asked somebody to be my sponsor or basically, to me, I did the first step. I admitted that I was powerless and, you know, that my life was unmanageable. And then I needed some help for the first time. I, admit, I admitted that I needed some help in trying to get my life back in order. And so he asked if, uh, he told me what he did. He weighed and measured his food. He ate four ounces of protein and he didn't eat sugar. He didn't eat flour. He didn't eat potatoes, any of the white stuff and he starches and he asked me if I could do the same thing well I said I didn't know if I could do 4 ounces of protein so I think I started like at 8 ounces of protein and then over the period of the next 6 months I got down to 4 ounces of protein and that you know um, I didn't have any um, doubt about that part of it uh, I, the big reservation was still the God part um, you know, the first couple of months I was in program, at the end of the meeting, saying the serenity prayer, whatever prayer, I kept on trying to say it without the word God in it. And if you try to do that, it really doesn't make any sense. Um, you know, it, so that's, that's where my quandary was. Could it, and, you know, when I talked to my therapist, can I do this program without God in my life? Uh, you know, will the fellowship, can I join the fellowship? Can I join a way without believing in God? I never heard, you know, I never heard, you know, when it said God as you understand God. I never, I, what I was was the, the man in spiritual experience that, you know, the ultimate contempt is, is, and ignorance is not is ignorance prior to investigation, and I wasn't going to investigate until a couple of things happened. Um, I had been in program several months, uh, probably lost uh, close to eighty or ninety pounds already, and my abstinence was. I mean, you know, uh, I weighed and measure everything, and I did it perfectly. And then one night, I decided that for some reason that I was not, um, you know, that my abstinence wasn't perfect, even though I'd been doing it perfectly. I decided that there was too much cheese in my, in my food plan. And basically I ate two ounces of cheese a day. And so I got this brilliant idea that I was going to break my abstinence that night and the next day I was going to have perfect abstinence. Now, uh, I was going to call up and order a couple of pizzas and have a clean break with this imperfect abstinence. And then, again, the next day start with a perfect abstinence. Now, to me, that's perfect attic logic. What better reason to eat than to have perfect abstinence? Yeah. You know, I mean, that's, that's ultimate attic thinking. So I sat down, uh, you know, I fully intended to make the call. I reached out, I grabbed the phone, and I couldn't make the call. And it was like all of a sudden, God that I don't believe in walked up behind me and slapped me up the side of the head and said, I'm here. And it was that strong of a presence of my higher power in the room. Then the other thing, it was, it was you know, like February or March, it was cold outside and raining, and I decided I wanted to go for a walk. And 
you know, it was late at night and it was raining and I hadn't been for a walk for, unless it was to go down to the 7-Eleven in a long time. So I walked around the block and it was like, wow, two miracles. And then uh, about two or three months later, I got my first job doing the 2000 census. It seems like it was that, mm-hmm. yeah, that was a long time ago. And I was going around door to door, bugging people about their lives, asking them questions, you know, that they hadn't sent in on their mailers. And I walked around the sidewalk and I tripped on a crack in the sidewalk and I fell down. And I popped right back up. And I said, oh my God, that's so much fun, I want to do it again. <laughs> because several months before I'd come into program, I'd fallen down in my living room and I leaned on a chair to get back up and I smashed the chair. And so it was a struggle just to get back up on my feet. And so to fall down and just pop right back up, it, it was a miracle. And, you know, um, I started to believe in something. I'm not sure what it was. Um, I, I had, uh, you know, I, I would go to meetings and I would hear people talk about their higher power and relationship with the higher power. And I'd always run up to them afterwards and say, you know, I'm an atheist. And you said, you're an atheist or you're an agnostic. What's your higher power? And they would explain it and it really wouldn't make sense. And uh, or I couldn't see myself with that higher power. And finally I went to a meeting in this uh, this little old woman got up and she must have been 75 years old and she gets up and says, I'm New York Jewish communist atheist and I'm the last person in the world to believe in God but I have a higher power now. She says, my higher power is my grandson. She says, you know, he's not my higher power but uh, the idea of being here and watching him grow up and helping with him and being able to get down on the floor with him and play with him, you know, that concept is my higher power. And so I walked up to her after the meeting. I said, you know, that sounds great. Uh, I don't think that's going to work for me, though. And she said, well, she said, it's very simple. What, what food do you have the most problem with? And I told her, double bacon western cheeseburgers. And she says, do you want a double bacon western cheeseburger as your higher power? And, you know, it, it was clear to me, I did have higher powers. I had uh, meth, I had double bacon cheeseburgers, I had the food, you know, certain behaviors. Uh, all those things were, were things that were, um, you know, greater than me. They were, and they controlled me. And I, and I gave up my life to those things and to those, their control. So why couldn't it be something positive? Why couldn't it be something, the fellowship in this program, that's what it was for a long time. And then uh, it was, it, uh, I had a sponsor that talked about the concept of, of being able to just do the right thing as a higher power. You know, that to turn my life over to that, to pray for that knowledge of what was the next right thing to do and turn my life over to that thing. And, um, you know, uh, for a long time that was it. And then I kind of, got off course um, and you know um, you know my, my life got incredibly better um, when I first came in here my problem was I was dying you know not just dying I was killing myself and I stopped doing that and I would go to seven or eight meetings or nine meetings or ten meetings a week. It didn't matter if it was in San Francisco or San Jose because I had nothing else to do. I had no job. Uh, you know, I had nowhere to go. I had no money. So going to meetings was easy. I did all kinds of service because service made me feel better. 
you know, putting away the chairs after a meeting to me was the, the greatest thing in the world because for the first time I was actually contributing in some way to something other than sitting in front of the TV and watching Gomer Pyle and Leave it to Beaver and whatever else was on, Andy from Mayberry, you know, whatever else was on television. So just, just to have service was a powerful thing, and I did lots of it. And I couldn't move beyond that stage of my life, though. I mean, I kept on losing the weight. My food plan was fine. I had friends in the fellowship. But <clears throat> things like uh, I couldn't put in job applications. I would get a job application and I read it. Oh, I have great skills for that job. And that application would go on the other stack of job applications that I had great skills for, you know, that weren't filled out. So I talked to my sponsor about it, and I said, you know, what am I going to do? And he got kind of, uh, you know, um, I know, let's see, uh, confrontational a little bit. And he started poking me in the chest and said, what you have to do is your fourth step. And, um, you know, he was right because I still didn't know who I was or what I was. You know, all my life uh, I'd been name myself. You know, was I, was I an auto worker? Was I a machinist? Was I uh, uh, a deadhead? Was I an anarchist? Was I a labor organizer? You know, I'd done all those things. But when I did my fourth step, what I really found out, I was an addict. You know, that's who I was and what I was. That's what ran my life for the 46 years, basically, before I walked into these rooms, was addict behavior, addict way of thinking, uh, addict, you know, use of substances, uh, and that's what ran me. And so what I had to do is figure out, number one, I, I, I understood that, and that's powerful knowledge. But the big book tells us over and over again, and the 12 steps tell us that the knowledge alone isn't enough. So I had to figure out how to start acting a different way. And I started doing things like praying and asking for help. Uh, I would fill out job applications, and I would go on interviews, and I would be walking up the street, going into the interview, saying the third step prayer, and people would be looking at me. This was before everybody had cell phones and earpieces, and now everybody talks on the street. But, um, you know, people looked at me like I was strange. And I didn't care, you know. Uh, but Because I, I could go into interview and I could do the best possible job on the interview. I could be as prepared as possible on the interview, partly because people in these rooms took the time to run me through mock interviews, to help me with my resumes, to prepare me for those things so that the, just the incredible fear and terror I felt about being myself in those interviews, I didn't feel anymore. And I could turn that over to my higher power and do the best job possible and walk out of there feeling that's over, you know, on to the next job or the next interview. And, you know, since I've done that, um, uh, I've just had this incredible life. Um, I got married several years ago. Um, I had some bad things happen. My mom passed away. But my program was at the center of all those things. Uh, I had people from program come down. My mom lived about 300 miles south of here. People from program came down. Uh, we had a chance to put like the third step prayer and the seventh step prayer in my mom's service. The third step prayer was in my wedding. Uh, but my wife is in program. Um, you know, just about everybody in the wedding was in program except a couple of family members. So uh, program has been the main part of my life. So I had this point when I walked in the rooms, I had to stop dying. Then I had to start living. 
And then I had to start living and learning to have a spiritual program with a big life, a life that I had not, never been prepared for, you know, or never even dreamed or imagined. And that's where I am now, and that's, that's proved more of a challenge than any other things because living the big life, um, you know, and having a great job and having a home and having a wife and family, those things... Um, require even more of a spiritual program, uh, more spiritual muscle than the first part. Not wanting to die is a natural instinct. You know, the big book talks about that. Living a spiritual life and living a life of abstinence and having abstinence the most important thing in your life when you have everything you want in your life, to me, is a much harder thing to do. Uh, to try and keep that as the center of your life. And, and you know, lately I found myself just, uh, uh, one of my big character defects is self-righteous anger, just exploding in anger, uh, uh, you know, a very nasty uh, anger that's directed inward and sometimes outward at other people. And I can't figure out where it's coming from, you know, because I have nothing to be angry about. So what I've really been trying to work on lately, um, to me, is the, is the issue of humility in my program. You know, um, how do I right-size myself uh, despite all these, uh, all these miracles in my life? Um, these are things that, that it's, you know, I hear the, I hear the buzzer. Um, these are things that... I have been given by this program and this fellowship and these are things on my own I never would have gotten so I have to remember to hold on to that that and and continue to work my program to hold on to those things and it's it's too easy for me when I'm in the middle of some success or in the middle of some big project to not remember that um, and not remember that I have people in this fellowship that care about me deeply and that I care about deeply and to call them and talk them over with them certain you know, problems I'm having, to talk over with my sponsor, to do the things, actually do the things he suggests to do. Um, it's hard to do that when I have um, these big things in my life. It's hard, to, it's, it's hard to be not to fall back into that addict mode, not to fall back into that fanatical mode when, you know, it seems like the things I want so much are just within grasp. But the things I want, I have already. That's what I have to realize. That's where the humility comes from. The things I want, I've had for a long time in these rooms. And the whole idea, when I walked into these rooms, I never imagined losing 250 pounds. You know, it's like nobody does that. You know, I guess if you have surgery or cut off part of your body or something like that, you can lose ton of But it just seemed inconceivable, but it happened one day at a time. And that's the same way I have to approach every day now is one day at a time and have that same kind of humility. But I have the next three years planned out day by day and minute by minute in my mind, and I can't do that. Um, but this fellowship, um, you know has taught me another way to live. And so uh, I'm incredibly grateful. Um, Thank you very much. Mm